think calmness in a crisis is uh, important. And I've spent a career dealing with other people's crises. I definitely do believe in transferable skills. And I think there's real value for both the individual and the organisation in getting people who've done different things. Uh, without fair game, I think it's non-sustainable. I mean, if you carry on doing what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. And we've got to change that. is treat people decently. And you, we don't like to think we do that, but do we, do we all do that all the time? Uh, and I think uh, if you're dealing with people decently and treating them as grown-ups, uh, you can move so much quicker. Welcome to another episode of the Business Takeaway podcast. If this is your first episode, do please go and find our previous ones to hear some great interviews. If you are subscribed to the pod and a regular listener, thanks for joining for another episode. Today's guest is Ian Mather. Now, Ian is the CEO of Cambridge United Football Club. I have to be honest here, I'm a massive fan of the football club and a season ticket holder, so it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. But Ian talks to us today about his journey as starting as a lawyer before ultimately migrating to the role of CEO. The football business is like no other and has really been hard hit like a lot of businesses during COVID. And it's interesting to hear how he took quick and swift action to protect the club and then the challenges around that they faced. What impressed me about Ian's interview was his takeaways. In today's world, technology is sometimes getting in the way of being a decent person and communicating properly. It's easy just to send an email, but sometimes an email just isn't right and you need to actually speak to people. I hope that you have something to take away from today's episode into your life or business. But for now, sit back and enjoy an hour or so with Ian Mather. Welcome today, uh, Ian Mather, who's uh, CEO of Cambridge United Football Club. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast, and thank you very much for coming and joining. Um, for those who don't know any history about me, I'm a massive Cambridge United fan. Uh, have been since about the age of nine or ten when I went to Wembley to see them get promoted, and been through the trials and tribulations of any football fan of promotions and relegations. Um, so I thought it'd be great to get Ian on to have a very different perspective on business and and, and the football business, which I think is he can probably talk about is very different to any other kind of business that's out there. Um, but uh, Ian, do you want to give a bit of introduction? to you, who you are, how you've become a CEO at a football club uh, and why Cambridge United uh, and, and go from there. Yeah, uh, Hello Ben and thank you for having me. It's an interesting uh, thing you've got going here. Uh, me, I was born in Manchester, uh, supported Manchester United as a child and lots of people will be saying, oh well that's supporting the glory team, but actually Man City were the, uh, pretty good at that time as well. Uh, I was born into a Manchester City household. My dad was a City fan. His brothers were, uh, my brother was, um, and I just chose to be a United fan to be awkward, which may give some indication to my future life of uh, not liking the status quo. So once you select a team, you, you're, you're stuck with it, aren't you? And actually not a bad team to be stuck with. I always have to say when asked, uh, you're a Man United fan, I said, yes, and I do come from Manchester and I have been to Old Trafford many, many times. 
Unlike, so most, that was my... unlike most Manchester United fans, I'll hasten to add. Yeah, I think that's cruel but fair. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I've been there a lot, and I, I my early football experience is watching Dennis Law, George Best, Bobby Charlton at their very best uh, in the late sixties, uh, and also I used to go to Man City and watch like Colin Bell, Mike Summerby, uh, Francis Lee. So it was a, it was a pretty much golden era to be a Mancunian football fan. Uh, I then uh, I went to university, read economics at York, uh, then did a, a conversion course uh, in Newcastle uh, and converted to law. I came down to Cambridge in 1982, qualified after two years of training in 1984 and practiced as a solicitor in Cambridge uh, for over 30 years as a partner uh, in three different law firms and retired at the end of May 20. 18. And the day after May 2018, 1st of June, uh, Sean Grady, who chairs the board at Cambridge United, phoned me up and said, would I go on the board? Uh, he said he was getting in before others. and uh, But I didn't take a, a minute to think about it and said yes. I was already a, a trustee of the community trust, so I knew the club. And actually, through my working life as a lawyer, I'd worked with the club uh, going back to the late 80s and 90s. So I dealt with uh, John Beck and uh, Roy McFarland. So I've got some history, quite a lot of history with the club. Uh, really love the club. I think it's a great uh, institution in Cambridge. So, uh, yeah, it was happy to move on to the board. Uh, and so you, you, your retirement took a, a, a twist when you then became CEO. So the retirement, sort of you came out of retirement to go back to work again. Yeah, well, when I retired, I did it thinking very much that I wanted to do something else, but I didn't know what that was going to be. But I wanted to retire early enough to give myself the space to see what popped up. And I did a little bit of consultancy work with a couple of organisations, uh, which were really, really nice, smart organisations. But uh, I still had space to do something else. And when I retired, I, I set myself three objectives that would determine whether I did anything else. And it had to be with, is something that I was interested in, with people I liked and people I trusted. And uh, it's sort of looking back over my career, the best times have been when you've been in that spot. And it doesn't always happen, does it? Um, but when you're in that spot, when doing stuff you like, with people you like and trust, uh, then uh, it's, uh, it's a really good feeling. And I had that feeling about Cambridge United when I was asked to join the board. And so the role of a CEO at a football club, how does that differ to a CEO at a commercial business or anything like that? Is it a different role? You know, you're, you're, you're heavily reliant on 11 men uh, producing the goods where you'd perhaps in a bigger business, you'd spread the risk amongst other people. Where, how does that differ yeah. sort of thing? Um, how does it differ from a, an ordinary CEO? Well, think, think about football is that it is a very unusual business. Uh, I've likened football, there's only two businesses that I've come across. In my career in Cambridge, I've come across a lot of startups. And startups don't budget for profit, not to start off with, because they, uh, they're they getting off the ground and they see a point where they break even, that's great, then they move into profit, fantastic. Football clubs budget for losses, largely. The vast majority are budgeting for losses. And we're no different. And so the job of a CEO in most companies is to maximize your profit or 
at least manage in profit. Uh, a job of a CEO in most football clubs is to minimise the loss, consistent with having a football team that's worthy of the name on the pitch. So it's, it is unusual. And there are lots of different moving parts within a football club. But then again, that's not necessarily different to lots of other businesses. And what do you think, you're, you're, uh, apart from possibly player contracts, but, uh, if you've ever got involved in those, but what sort of, from the being a lawyer, what skills have you brought into the, the have you brought anything from your previous career into the club, sort of specific, those skills? Or is it just the more sort of managing people and putting some shape around the organisation and things like that? Uh, I think uh, in my legal career, I had management roles within the law firm. Um, and lawyers can be really quite difficult to manage. I've been likened to herding cats. Uh, and so some management skills. The legal skills are really about, I think, calmness in a crisis is uh, important. And I spent a career dealing with other people's crises. I was a contentious employment lawyer. Uh, that's not that I was contentious, but I was dealing with contentious <laughs> yeah, issues. And uh, so I've had a whole career of picking up things that are difficult uh, and challenging and people are quite stressed. And uh, actually the period that we've had since it took over, well, we did go through a period of, of shareholder change, which was quite um, difficult. Uh, we had 705 shareholders and we, we moved that to one and that took quite a lot of legal work, uh, liaising with my former colleagues in my last firm, Mills and Reeve. Um, but in, in the law comes into all aspects of the job. There's many contracts around uh, a football club operation. So that's that's been helpful. And obviously, being an employment law, when COVID hit, uh, that was really quite helpful. I did a, a meeting recently with Mark Bonner, the head coach, and uh, he was asked how, how COVID had been for him. And he said, well, uh, in March 2020, uh, on the Monday, he said that Ian gave me a new contract, which was great as permanent head coach. And then on the Friday, he gave me a 20% pay cut as COVID had hit. Uh, I, did, I did remind the room that uh, I also took a 20% pay cut along with all the other staff. Uh, but there's quite a lot of employment law around managing the COVID world. So... Uh, all in all, I think legal skills and the business skills I've had as a lawyer have been really quite helpful. I'd, I'd certainly say from a fan perspective uh, that there feels a, a certain level of calmness at the top of the club that we haven't seen. Uh, this is probably getting into the nitty gritty for non-Cambridge United supporters, but yeah. uh, there's certainly been more calmness than we've seen before. And it, it certainly feels that calmness is certainly there at the top. So I can I concur with what you're what, with what you're saying. Um, you're also chairman of the Cambridge Arts Theatre Trust, um, which is a for me as a personal, you know, is a, something close to my heart. How's how does that sort of the three sort of the bedfellows of the being an ex-lawyer, the theatre, and then the football club? How does that all work together? Yeah. So for those who don't who are listening and don't know about the Cambridge Arts Theatre, it is, uh, I'd say, and many others say, the premier uh, theatre in the east of England, uh, and proximity to London helps, and we take a lot of productions that come out of the West End and some that go from us into the West End. Uh, and producers love coming to Cambridge because it's a well-run theatre that gets good audiences and frankly producers get a decent return from us. So if they're, uh, we get some really good shows uh, and 
it's it's just a joy. The arts theatre operates for the charitable purpose of encouraging a lifelong love of the performing arts. Uh, And we take that mission really seriously. So we we don't just put on commercial stuff. We put on stuff that's a bit more marginal. um, But we do put on a lot of uh, activity on the stage. And uh, that's uh, a secret to it being a charity, but a commercially run charity that requires on no public requires no public subsidy at all. And one of the few theatres in the UK that operates without any public subsidy. But we do rather well, and uh, it's it's a joy to be around. It's similar to the football club, really, a lot of really good people who really care passionately about what they do uh, and deliver a, a good product. And I, I mean, I, I know that I grew up at the Arts Theatre as a as a very young, spotty eighteen year old. So I, I know that I know that building, and I know the passion behind it. And you you've obviously moved from one career to a, another, you know, another career into another sector of business. And I think a lot of people nowadays work in their sectors. I've worked in the entertainment industry for twenty years. That's what I've done, and I haven't moved from that entertainment sector really. What do you think are businesses should be looking at now do you think actually businesses shouldn't be looking at people in their sector um and they should cast their net wider when they're looking for people and and you know i think there's a lot of transferable skills that people can bring from other sectors and and how do you you've made that transition um how do you feel that you know what could be done to make those things better and what do you think that sort of brings to people in different roles i definitely do believe in transferable skills And I think there's real value for both the individual and the organisation in getting people who've done different things into the into the company, because it just keeps life fresher. And uh, I've approached uh, the world of football with perhaps a different lens than somebody who has been in football management all their life. Uh, And so I think that the organisation benefits for that. Speaking as the individual here. I think I'd benefit because as much as I love the law and I was working in some really brilliant law firms with brilliant colleagues, but there comes a time in all of our lives, I suspect, and this might chime with a few of your listeners, where you just get bored having done the same meeting. Uh, Even cases that I was dealing with in employment law, they're all a bit different, but they get to be a bit samey. When you've done your nth number of sex discrimination cases, there's there's only so much variation there and uh, so actually doing something different is quite invigorating and I didn't want to uh, carry on working but on my terms uh, had I carried on doing law and being bored I just don't think I think I'd have tailed off as being a lawyer uh, and productivity wouldn't have been great and that's just not a great place to be whereas actually doing what I'm doing is is really quite fun and and talking of doing what you're doing the 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 business of football obviously 20 we talked you talked about mark bonner's contract and the friday he got a pay cut the covid hit football and there was the whole confusion at the start of this you know what's going to happen are the games going to be postponed i remember standing in hospitality i think on the final saturday match which it turned out to be the final saturday match and everyone was like well might see you in a few weeks might not see you in a month don't know and 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 it was about a year and a half before we got back how how did what was the first things you did when covid hit what was and and you know there's no manual for covid right so what what was the steps we took as a club and you took with the club 
a big deep breath and let's analyze the situation we're in as much as you do with any crisis i've not managed the covid crisis before nobody has but i managed crises before and it's just let's let's not panic let's look at what's in front of us what's really important what can we do quickly and i think one of the things that we did we were very successful at was making decisions quickly that's being an aligned organization uh, who are all agreed pretty much for the direction we want to go but we made decisions quickly so we furloughed people as soon as that was possible to do uh, we reduced the staff levels down to eight running the club on a skeleton of eight um, and it was really just trying to look forward and make best guesses as to what was in front. And of course, that was really difficult because nobody really knew. And were we going to be playing by June? You know, were we going to just delay the season a bit? Um, so we ran a load of scenarios, financial scenarios, through to not playing any games in the following season. And then we modelled what the, the numbers would be like in that scenario uh, and whether we would frankly run out of cash because that ultimately is the the thing that will kill football clubs or kill any business you run out of cash so we could see that revenues would would gone um, and we didn't know when they were going to come back you're still committed to uh, contracts and to wages so we just we planned and we we recognized there was a point where actually we would be quite critical uh, for us we also have an owner uh, who a 100 owner whose business was based in the usa bringing wealthy americans to europe on holiday and you don't need to be an economist to work out that, that wasn't a great business to be in uh, and when you talk i talked earlier about budgeting for a loss well paul barry is the owner who funds the losses so we we were holding a degree of reserves prudent run football club we were not going to run out of cash overnight anything like it but we uh it didn't look great looking forward which is why we brought in a couple of extra investors who've been really good uh, and solid and then all the other steps we took brought in revenue and uh, we just managed our way through the situation and we're prepared to adapt as the situation changed I mean, a football club, for those who aren't f follow football or anything like that, it, it relies on the income of its supporters to turn up through the gates. You know, the, the, the ground gets 90 minutes of action every other weekend, practically through the year. And, and, and that's where the revenue streams is. So to have that tap turned off must be a it must be a big hit to, to try and catch just basic things like cash flow and get that through the business must be quite a challenge in that time. Oh, definitely. And uh, other sources of revenue are corporate sponsors, but they, they were giving us money for what, what were they getting for their money? Did they want their money back? In really good corporate sponsors stuck with us. We had a really solid base, have a really solid base of corporate sponsors who stuck with us, but we didn't know that they would at that time. So there were so many uh, imponderables and the situation kept changing. So we, we were the first club in the UK to bring fans back in a, in a measured way. Um, and we worked with the Football League to work out how that could be done. And we had a few games when we actually had fans back. Uh, interestingly, that didn't help us financially at all because the fans that came back were limited in number to 2,000, which is pretty much 1,500 of those as season ticket holders. They'd already paid us. 
uh, I think you included, Ben. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so you're entitled to come without paying it. So we have 500 people paying, but we have massive amount of extra security and hired in portaloos. So those games cost us money, um, which uh, was a bit counterintuitive, really. Uh, but that's all part and parcel of being in a very uh, unpredictable world we've all had in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. And I think it brings us on to the wider topic, which is something I know the club are and you are very passionate about, which is the the sort of drive to being football, being more sustainable. I think I think as a as fans at the if you're not a big fan or you're a fan of a Premier League club, you don't see the challenges of lower league football. Um, you know, it's not a, as you said, it's not a sustainable business model for any, you know, I think there's the old phrase about being an airline billionaire, isn't it? You start as a billionaire and you become a millionaire is the, the, is the line about that. But I think it's the same for football. But the fair game, the fair game movement, which is to try and get some more equality in that sort of football financial pyramid is something we've joined up to as a club. Do you want to just talk about how you see that fair game could work and, and what it could actually bring to lower league football in the UK? Yeah, I think it could bring good things to all football in the UK. Uh, we have a, a pyramid of football clubs in the UK, which is unique in Europe. We have far more football clubs than other countries do, and which is why some foreign managers like Pep Guardiola comes over here and co- coach from Man City, for those who don't know him, uh, thinks that uh, he just doesn't understand the pyramid, which is a load of football clubs doing brilliant things in their communities. They're really important to their communities. Clearly, I would say that for Cambridge, but you could say it for clubs in Nottingham or Mansfield or or the North East or Wigan. Yeah. There's all clubs all over the country. Uh, and they're all in a financially difficult spot because they are not financial the business model is not financially stable give you a a real life example in the championship the level beneath the premier league in the season before covid the average player wage bill was 107 percent of income now business audience you've got it haven't you uh that you can't carry on like that and you've seen uh clubs derby county is a club in that uh, league and they've just now um, been gone into administration. And, and they were playing a, an odd game of uh, not amortising the value of their players properly, inconsistent with others. So it sounds a bit dry and boring, doesn't it? But uh, they weren't following the accountancy rules. Uh, and eventually it caught up with them and they've gone insolvent. And, and I could list a load of other clubs. And there's, uh, I could, or for Europe, I won't, on the question of clubs that have done poor things and gone out of business and they can really damage their communities. And what we want to do in fair game is just step back a bit and say, you know what, there's a lot of money in football. Let's be clear about it. There's a lot of money in football. Um, and a lot of it sticks in the Premier League and and disappears in enormous player pay, likes of three, four hundred thousand pounds a week to players. And lots of money goes to agents. Um, can that money be better allocated? We think it can. There's a big lump of money that goes to the next league down in what's called parachute payments when a club gets relegated. And that is 50, 60 million pounds a year going in that 
in that pot. And all that means is that clubs could get relegated into that uh, league, get the parachute payments. They can pay far more for players than other clubs. So there's a little rotation going on at the top of the championship with the parachute payment money. It's just completely bonkers. And that money could be better allocated to the other lower leagues who can make a lot more use of it. With the one proviso that it doesn't go on player pay. So there needs to be some regulation over player pay. But clubs aren't going to regulate themselves. We tried to do that uh, and it, it, it didn't work for various technical legal reasons. Uh, and so we don't have any salary caps over squads now in the UK. There's some uh, some rules about it, but they're not particularly strong. Uh, so we need to find a way of getting more money down to the lower leagues and make sure they spend it wisely and not just on player pay. And so one of the things in Fair Game, and if, if any listener is interested, there's a Fair Game website. You can Google it and uh, look at the manifesto. It's a chunky document, but it's, it's well written. And we use a lot of experts uh, from different fields, including finance, to uh, set up what are the issues and what are our proposed solutions. Uh, but I, I think uh, if the ideas in the Fair Game Manifesto were carried forward, uh, you would see a real improvement to facilities for fans. You would see a real improvement in the facilities to young footballers to help them develop. So the academy network would have better facilities because clubs will be able to invest in it rather than play this, I call it football gambling game of throwing money at players, more money than some clubs can afford, uh, and uh, in the hope that they're going to get the, the juicy apple of the Premier League, uh, and then uh, often they don't, and clubs get into difficulty. So we've just got to reshape it, and at the cornerstone, we need an independent regulator. And I, th- I think it's always the fans that suffer. You, you know, it, we we went through administration a while back uh, in Cambridge, and and you see that you see all the clubs like the Boltons or those that have been through it, and then you see the berries that go out of business. And it it could be one owner who shoots for the moon and 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 hits something completely different, and and then you the club goes. But it's people who've been going to that season. They've had a season ticket for fifty years, and they've been going. And it's actually the fans that suffer. And that's as a fan of a club, that's what I sort of. I feel safe where we are now, of course, but in the you see the the other fans what they're going through, and you just feel horrible. If I didn't have a Cambridge United, I don't know what I would do with my Saturdays or my Tuesday evenings yeah. and things, you know. Um, so I think it's vital. It's it's that. But we just had the you know we had the European Super League breakaway last year, um, which obviously got stopped pretty pretty quickly. But it's can the Premier League are they going to buy into this because it's actually making them poorer? Is it not? Yeah, well, I think the Premier League can take an awful lot of convincing about this. But actually, when the Premier League was set up, there was a proposed television and media deal uh, with the Football League, where the Football League would have got 25%. Uh, stupidly, at the time, they turned it down. Really, that's all that the uh, Football League are now asking for. Go back 20 years and give us that that slice. Um, so they, they will resist it, I'm sure. But actually, I think there's a lot of clubs who will... I think, realise that enlightened self-interest says, aren't we off all better off if we've got a, a better system of running football? And that if they do drop out of the uh, f- uh, the Premier League into the Championship, they've got an equal chance with others of getting getting back. So hopefully they will uh, see there's, there's value in it. The Premier League do get a lot of value out of lower league clubs. Uh, that's where they send 
uh, young players to get some experience on the loan market. Uh, and uh, all lower league clubs help Premier League clubs in that sense. So there's got to be a value to them in seeing those lower league clubs being well run. And and sort of just coming on to the talking about the community aspect of football clubs and and what you said, uh, you know, about that you worked on the trust, you were associated with the trust before you became further on the board. Um, when we went into sort of going back into the COVID times, we our trust did a lot of work in the community. And I think people will think as rich, greedy footballers taking their big pay packets, driving their flash cars, etc. But actually at, at our level, there's a lot of... There's a lot of players who aren't earning the, that big money and there's a lot of work the club is doing in the community as well. And I think when we shut down, the community trust sort of got into action, do you know what I mean? It was a vital part of the work in the city. It really was. We were going and meeting people at Garden Gate visits, taking them food. We turned our kitchens away from doing hospitality on match days to producing food for the people around the stadium. And we had people, including players, going to houses, delivering food. We did uh, over 100 unique participant phone calls. So uh, people from the club phoning lonely people on a regular basis. Uh, we did, did 200 Zoom calls with disability groups. Uh, we took activity packs to uh, families you know, with kids locked up in their houses uh, sometimes not very large houses and some large families. It must have been terrible for them. But we'd take take round activity packs with games and football associated things. Um, we uh, we had keepy uppy challenges. We did uh, some coaching at home uh, using uh, the Zoom facility, uh, fitness at home. We did so many things that we just turned our resources to help the community. No, and I think that's I think that can't be it can be forgotten when you when you come away from a, a defeat on a Tuesday night and it's you, you've been rained on all night it, you can it can have a negative effect but you forget about that work that's that's absolutely vital to the community. Um, football, as you said, is is a difficult business to make any money. But going back to the fair game topic, do you think football can ever be financially sustainable without fair game, or or is it always going to rely on the the owner who's happy to fund a loss or put the money in? Is it in the lower leagues? Is it just a non-sustainable business? Uh, without fair game, I think it's non-sustainable. And if you carry on doing what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. And we've got to change that. And I just think there's a real opportunity to uh, make a real difference. We've got the, the Tracy Crouch MP review of football uh, and I, I'm hoping that she's going to come up with some fairly chunky recommendations. And the message to government is that they need to listen. One of the things that came out of Super League you talked about earlier was uh, the Super League clubs across Europe all thought they'd got it nailed down. They thought they could do what they wanted because competition law couldn't prevent, it could be prevented from doing it because of competition law. The thing that really turned it on its head was when the UK government and the UK opposition together said, well, if that's what's getting in the way of this, we'll change the law. And I was at Leighton Orient for uh, one of the last games of the season. We, as we went out to watch the start of the game, uh, Super League was really uh, still on track. As we came in for half time, it had fallen apart completely. And that was because 
the uh, the Super League lawyers had looked at each other, I'm quite sure, and realised, well, we didn't factor in that as a possibility, the law changing, and it just crumbled. So it shows the power of politicians, and it shows the power of fans to influence politicians to make a real difference. So people often say to me, oh, well, there's no chance, you're not going to get any change. Well, if you don't try, you're definitely not going to get any change. So I'd urge all fans and anyone who is interested in sport at all to uh, encourage uh, the likes of fair game, encourage changes under the Tracy Crouch review, get a hold of your politicians and get them to back it. I think it's um, it's also that thing of competition. I mean, you know, you're, you're a Manchester United fan, so you're, if you've been used to that, you're... you're um, you're more used to glory than perhaps others fans but it's that it's the Leicester it's the Leicester's winning the Premier League and although I'm not a Premier League fan you that journey of going can they actually do this from relegation favourites the year before to where they were it's it's the journey that with the Super League it it becomes a franchise of the states and and we've never had that model in Europe or in the UK and it you know I don't know that I'd ever want to see Cambridge in the Premier League but you always just go well actually could we ever get there and what would that be like and, and if you don't have that promotion and relegation and all those things it just defeats competition it's it becomes soulless yeah you know yeah and I did it, it's referred to as the European Super League but I was shown by a journalist the press release which they issued to start off with and it referred to Super League and you look at the Americans that were behind a lot of those clubs uh, I'm pretty sure as was this journalist, this was not a European Super League. This was a global Super League they were thinking of in time. And that's such a million miles away from uh, the football that many people up and down the country enjoy. And I think they were at real risk of destroying that pyramid. Indeed. And and there's probably a very good point to to leave it before we move on to uh, the second half. So thank you very much and come back in the second half. We'd like to welcome Arkea UK as a sponsor to the Business Takeaway podcast. Arkea is a German cosmetic brand with a vision to offer men and women all over the world and of all ages the ideal grooming routine. Delivered through a high concentration of active ingredients, it's a unique proposition offered by the product. Arkea only work with pure, organic ingredients and convinced that the best recipes for beautiful and healthy skin can be found in nature. Arkea UK are offering all listeners to the Business Takeaway podcast 25% off their orders by entering the code POD25 at their website arkea.uk. That's A-R-C-A-Y-A dot UK. We'd like to thank Arkea for getting involved with the Business Takeaway podcast and hope our listeners can benefit from this great offer. Now back to today's episode. So welcome back, uh, everyone. Uh, the first half was fascinating, talking about football and the bits about the the problems facing football clubs going forward. But let's let's move on to Ian and and your you know being a lawyer for a long period of time and the experiences of running a legal firm and then coming to the football club and things. What have you sort of your big takeaway lessons you've learned in life about business? And you know, there's people listening to this who will be in different sectors. There probably won't be many football club CEOs at the moment on this. Um, you know, what lessons have you turned from the football club or being legal that, you know, people might be able to put into a IT firm or a accountancy firm or something like that? Uh, I think there's a there's a number, but 
I'll give you a couple that I think are really important. Number one is communication. A lot of things that get, and bear in mind my background as an employment lawyer, I've seen when things go wrong. Uh, poor communication is often at the heart of it. Uh, you know, we've, in my lifetime, I've seen the development of email culture uh, and people thinking they've communicated when they've sent an email or copied somebody in. You know, and actually sometimes you just need to talk to people. So I always encourage really good communication. And sometimes that does mean getting in a room and talking things through. So communication's one. And the other, it's also people related, is, is treat people decently. And you, we don't like to think we do that, but do we, do we all do that at all the time? Uh, and I think uh, if you're dealing with people decently and treating them as grown-ups, uh, you can move so much quicker uh, rather than uh, playing games or, or uh, in somehow just being mean and nasty. Mean and nasty never really does it. It doesn't help you. Uh, whereas if you're treating people as grown-ups and you're, you're being decent, you can, get, you can do so much more. And I have obviously dealt with lots of employment situations, both as a manager and a lawyer. And uh, if you're just honest and open, uh, then you can just get a much better working relationship. Uh, and in any business, any business, you are not going to do well if you don't have a good culture in your organisation where people actually can make mistakes and not get burnt for it, um, that they prepare to fess up to the mistakes, because let's be honest, we all make mistakes. Um, and uh, so that that culture, that collaborative culture where people are prepared to share and help each other is really important. And if you can get that, that's going to take your business a long way. Allied to that is alignment of, uh, of what everyone in, in the organisation. I'm taking it back to Cambridge United to illustrate, but it also could have, I, I use Mills and Reed, my the law firm, uh, there was complete alignment there from the, the managing partner through to the most junior employee. It had a staggering statistic where it was somewhere in the region of 98% of staff working for Milton Reeve would recommend it to a friend or family as a place to work. That's just off the scale. And that is really borne out by good, honest, open communication, collaborative working, however you want to put it but it does mean that your organisation can be very successful, as indeed Mills and Reeve are. I think it's important as an employee that you feel supported in your role because I think you go, you know, the jobs now, especially with COVID, I'm sat in my office, which I can walk to from about 10 steps from my bedroom, you know, and, and it, therefore you don't ever step away from work. And I think if you feel supported in your job, then you feel motivated to do the job and that gets a demotivated person you don't get the best out of somebody so i think it's i think it's a really important lesson to to sort of take away from it is that keeping people happy and and treating people like a person you know um it's really important yeah. and on the communication side of things you know the the messages sort of going back to the covid and the football situation the the communication i think was vital to the fans 
and and the, the all the stakeholders you know the fans are the people who pay the bills in essence in in some ways and i think getting that message to them over that time was crucial um what and and you also took a bit of a public stage i remember seeing you on sky sports a few times what sort of how how was dealing for the uh, dealing with the press and the tv cameras and everything how was that for you um and how did you find all of that uh, uh, to be honest, I quite enjoyed it, uh, and uh, I I got involved in uh, debating things about finance and assistance from the Premier League. Uh, did a couple, a few live interviews. Uh, we also had there was an incident. Uh, uh, your listeners might be aware of uh, the taking the knee, and uh, we did have a situation where uh, a few very small number of people booed taking the knee uh, and I'd not got out of the ground that night before Sky Sports were on the phone to me saying would I uh, do an interview the following morning so I said instinctively I said yes because I believe that we should be able to, to stand up to uh, difficult things and say what our opinion is and that was possibly the uh, the most challenging interview in the sense that I got home about 10 o'clock and we then needed to work out what the club position was going to be. Uh, and there was communication with our owner in, in Seattle. Uh, there was communication with the board. But I, So roll forward to the next morning and it's uh, quarter to nine. The camera's there at the end of the stadium. Uh, and uh, I've got an earpiece in. I'm listening to Sky Sports go out live. Uh, but if we still actually nailed down what we were going to say as our position, I'd got it pretty clear in my mind. And then stood in front of the camera. I'm looking down the camera to do the interview to the studio a minute to go. And one of my colleagues' phone goes off. My phone's off because I'd, I'd learned that mistake. Don't have a live phone when you're about to do a live interview. Uh, and he passes my phone and his, his uh, colleague had got a, an idea as to what the position should be. And uh, I've got the phone in one ear and I've got Sky in the other saying, uh, 30 minutes to live, 20, uh, 15 seconds. Uh, and... Uh, I then faced the camera, gave the phone away and uh, explained our position, which is the position I'd first thought of, which uh, is one we stuck with. And, and you know, you, you talked about communication method and communication and actually picking the phone up and talking to people. How do you feel in the world of social media? Uh, you are relatively active on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you feel communication methods have changed over, you know, 20 years ago, the CEO of Cambridge United would not have been on Twitter putting statements out and things like that. How do you feel that's changed in, in today's world? Uh, well, clearly it is. I mean, I grew up in a world without social media to start off with, and uh, but I'm a convert to it if it's used wisely. Uh, we have about 70,000 followers at Cambridge United, uh, and uh, so that's a big reach. So if I want to get a message out, uh, then it's a very good medium. Of course, there are there's bad stuff that goes on on social media, and uh, I clearly don't do that, and uh, I've got no time for anyone who does. I think there's things that social media really needs to do to sharpen up its act. If uh, if anyone's listened to this, I'm Ian Mather ten on Twitter. Uh, I put my name on and I put my face on. So when I tweet, it's me. It's not uh, Mr. Duffy, uh, you know, or, or Teddy Bear, you know some anonymous name where I can tweet any rubbish that I want and be abusive to people. I would just make sure that anyone's going to put their face, and their name on their Twitter account. There's things that could be done because we've got to, got to sort out 
abuse on social media. It's not just Twitter. But I do think it's a force for good. And, uh, yeah, I, we put things out and then some people question me and uh, I, I reply. And, uh, you know, I'll go back to my point about communication earlier. Communication tools have changed. We've just got to move with the times. But the basic tool of communicating and talking to somebody hasn't changed, you know what I mean? I think it's very easy to hide behind yeah. that, as you said, the Twitter thing and, and not actually talk to people. Well, actually, on that point, there was a, uh, uh, getting into an esoteric argument over a particular competition in football called the EFL Trophy, which a lot of football fans hate. Uh, and uh, I actually think it's quite a good idea. So I tweeted that I thought it was a good idea, and then people started battering me. And I said, well, why don't I come on your podcast and uh, we'll debate it? Because I can't put into 180 characters why I think it's a good idea. Uh, and I recorded that this week. Uh, to say why I think it is a good idea. So there's two two podcasts in a week. It's there we go. There we go. Recording yeah. all that. Um, and and how do you feel the the club you know and and football can sort of move this communication, you know, communicating with fans forward. There's a there's a future episode coming up with somebody who's talking about sort of all high tech reality and things like that. Do you think football? can move forward with this sort of technology or is it always going to be about the 90 minutes on the pitch or or do you think clubs can do lots of innovative things with technology moving forward i think they can do things so we we do um, things like match in a minute with video of uh, yeah, our, our match day experience from beginning to end in a minute or highlights so people can have a sneak look at it uh uh, it will evolve, wouldn't it? And if you say, what's it going to be like in 10 years? I really don't know, because uh, 10 years ago, you couldn't have predicted where we are now. I think you just have to move with the times and and use the, the use the tools you've got in a, in a constructive way. I think we, we do pretty well. I'm sure there are things that we can learn. We're constantly learning uh, and uh, open to new ideas. Now, if there was a golden rule that you lived by, Ian, and it you, you was your motto for life or something like that, what would that really be? I think I alluded to earlier, it's, it's be decent to people. Uh, treat them as grown-ups. Uh, treat them with respect. That carries you a long way. And uh, just, I, I learned that from my dad, who was a trade union official. He's a trade union leader in Manchester uh, for the engineers. And uh, he had a great expression. And he said, if I blow your candle out, it doesn't make mine burn any brighter. And so that's for my dad. He, he was a brilliant uh, code to live by. He had lots of other good sayings as well. Uh, and he was a brilliant dad. And uh, I, I defy anyone to argue with that. It never does you any good to blow somebody else's candle out. And of course, as, uh, as people in business and, uh, you know, people with good education you can do it all the time you can see the opportunities every day to sort of have a go or belittle someone just don't do it there's no point it is it's actually really mean and nasty and uh, unpleasant so don't do it I've, I've never heard that blown the candle out but i think that's that's that that is absolutely brilliant Thank you very much. There are, as we're doing with all the podcast interviews, and if you become a regular listener, you'll, you'll start to see this feature coming. We do some rapid fire questions. Now, the interviews we've all done so far, the rapid fire becomes less rapid fire whilst people get stumped with these questions. Um, so we'll see how you get on, Ian. Um, you've already 
you've you've already uh, said the answer to one question already. So I'm hoping you're going to say that uh, the same answer again because you've already mentioned it in the pod. But let's see where we go. So, um, Apple or Android phones? Apple. Good man. Um, well, we've already talked about this as well, but Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, what is your social media of choice? I, some, I did, will allow TikTok, but I don't know whether you're big on TikTok. But uh... I'm not big on TikTok. I think it depends on the medium. I've got a LinkedIn account and I've got a Twitter account. That's it. Uh, and they're used for different things. Yeah. Beach or city break? City. Hate beaches. I get bored in two or three seconds. Uh, town or country? Country. Country. First class or save the money? Save the money. Morning or night person? Night. Exercise. Is it important or not? Yes, it is. I get very grumpy if I don't do exercise. Innovate or improve? Uh, I think you get more, you get further by improving. Uh, innovation sounds really cool and it has got its uh, point. And great when you can innovate, but actually you can move more by improving. Challenge the status quo or not? Absolutely challenge the status quo. I yeah, you got that one. I, I knew that one was that one that was going to be an obvious one uh, when you said it earlier. I was like, well, don't even to ask that one. And if I'm at a bar, what's the drink I'm going to buy you? You're going to buy me a pint of really good real ale. I thought that might be the guess with that one. Um, so that concludes all the questions uh, on the rapid fire round. Just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining. It's been a, a fascinating chat about football. Um, I know that quite a lot of people who listen might not be football fans, but I think there's lots to understand where the game is, uh, where the game's going, and and really sort of take away some of the lessons you've learned from it and the challenges we faced as a football club as well. So thank you very much for joining in. It's been fantastic to have you on board. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been uh, really enjoyable. I think on reflection what came across in today's episode is that Ian's calmness and decency is something we can all look to master. I thought the quote from his dad about blowing out somebody else's candle is one we should all think about. I know also how keen Ian is to see that the Fair Game initiative is mastered for all clubs. I've put a link to this and also Ian's personal Twitter in the show notes so do go and check those out. Ian is a very busy man as well and the interview is done between a full day of meetings so I want to thank him for his time. We've got some more cracking guests lined up on the coming weeks, so if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit the subscribe, follow or like button on whatever platform you listen. If you'd also like to leave us a five-star review, that helps with all the algorithms, which helps us grow and get more guests on board. If you'd like to be on the Business Takeaway Podcast, please do drop us a line to thebusinesstakeawaypodcast at gmail.com. That's thebusinesstakeawaypodcast at gmail.com. It just leaves me to say thank you for listening. Thank you for all the great feedback that we've had on earlier episodes and we hope to have you join us on the Business Takeaway podcast again soon. Bye for now.